This is week eight of our series looking at the opening chapters of Genesis. And today uh, we are going to be camping out for the majority of our time in Genesis chapter three, which I think is no exaggeration to say has got to be one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. It's the story of the fall of the human race right back at the beginning of time. Now, whether or not you would personally say you embrace the Christian faith, I think probably it's fair to say that all of us would agree that something isn't quite right with the world right now. Agreed on that? Things aren't quite right? Certainly driven home to me three weeks back when I stood in one of the gas chambers at Auschwitz where in excess of one million innocent men, women and children were exterminated over a harrowing, harrowing, harrowing four-year period. Outside on the wall, there was a plaque with a famous quote from George Santayana that said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But as our guide for the day pointed out, in reality, maybe not quite to the same extent, but nonetheless, there have been awful atrocities carried out all around the world ever since. It's like we haven't learnt the lesson. We haven't remembered. In fact, right now, within just a few miles of this building, there will be numerous victims of trafficking and slavery and horrific abuse. It's hard to deny, isn't it? There are some pretty evil people out there. Now, as I stood in that gas chamber, I couldn't help thinking, how did this happen? What possessed people to behave in this way? What's the cause of such evil? Where does all the evil in the world come from? But if you listen to the experts, they would say, well, often it's down to a lack of education. Uh, In some cases, it's because of unjust social conditions. Uh, Often it's because of family breakdown. Uh, Others would say, no, 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 no. It's all the fault of religion or extreme ideologies. I think the trouble with that is, when you look into it, there are a lot of people who have done some pretty awful things, who in reality have been well-educated, wealthy atheists from incredibly stable backgrounds. Which kind of begs the question, what if all of those conditions don't actually cause the evil? What if those conditions only magnify something that is already inside us? What if the main problem is lurking somewhere in all of our hearts? Let's put this to the test. Honesty time. How many of you have ever had one of those embarrassing moments where you inadvertently said something that the moment you said it, you thought, ah, I wish I could draw those words back into my mouth. Maybe it was an outburst of anger. Maybe you said something about someone that you regretted the moment it slipped out. Maybe you 
blurted out an opinion on something that cast you in a bad light. Anyone relate with this? Show of hands. The majority of people in the room. Now, what do we all tend to say when that happens? I think we say, I'm so sorry, that isn't really what I'm like. I didn't really mean it. That isn't who I really am. But most of the time, you did mean it, and it is who you really are. It's just that as we grow older, we get slightly better at filtering what's in our hearts. It's like we learn how to keep our mouths shut until we get really old, and then we lose all inhibition, and it all comes tumbling out again. But just because we don't say it doesn't mean it isn't inside of us. In fact, maybe what slipped out of your mouth in that moment is the best reflection of what is actually hidden deep down in your heart. Maybe it's not the exception, but a reflection of what's really going on inside you. Have any of you heard of a man called Yahail Diner? Anyone heard of Yahail Diner? Well, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was one of the few survivors of Auschwitz, and uh, a number of years later, he was called on to testify against Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the main masterminds behind the death camps and that whole Jewish genocide. And there's footage online, you, you can look at it later if you want, that shows Diner walking into the courtroom and collapsing to the floor in a heap the moment he sets eyes on Eichmann. Now at the time, people watching kind of assumed he was overcome with fear in that moment, or hatred, or just the sheer trauma of the memories and the flashbacks. But years later, in a television interview, he explained that actually what happened in that moment was it hit him that standing there in front of him, the other side of the courtroom, was someone just like him. And if Eichmann was capable of doing this, then maybe so was he. Diner concluded, I think Eichmann is in all of us. You know what? As we look at the state of the world around us, I think it's hard to disagree. And what we're going to open up and unpack and see in today's passage I certainly think he's going to back this up. Now, just to warn you, this is heavy stuff, isn't it? But through it, I believe God does want to speak to us uh, and bring us to a deeper place of understanding and hope, and maybe for some of us, even freedom. And so before we go any further, I'm going to pray and ask the God who's already been here speaking to us to speak a little bit more. Heavenly Father, it can be hard watching the news and listening to stories from people that we care about that speak of pain and abuse and suffering. It, it can really get to us. It can bring us down. It, it can be deeply depressing. Father, would you come today and show us a way through this and would you speak to us individually that where there are things in our lives that maybe contribute to the world being as it is, would you convict, would you challenge, would you come with revelation 
so that you can lead us into a place of light and freedom and hope and joy. Pray it for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Let's pick it up in Genesis 2, verse 16. But the Lord God warned Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then let's jump down to the start of chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So right away, before we get into the rest of it, and we will get into the rest of it, but some of you are thinking, a talking snake. (laughs) I mean, that's preposterous. That's ridiculous. That could never have happened. And then when it's explained that, well, it wasn't just a talking snake, it was actually Satan speaking through the snake, well, that raises a whole bunch of other questions, doesn't it? Like, well, who's Satan and where did he come from? And what's wrong with him? And how did he get that way? But really, that's not the point of this passage. This passage refuses to get sidetracked by any of those questions because really, that is not what we most need to know right now. It's way more important that we focus in on the question of how we got the way we are. And I think if we read this passage with that question uppermost in our minds, then I reckon we're going to find it incredibly instructive. So let's keep going. Verse 2. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Remember that quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. What can we learn from this passage so as to avoid repeating what happens here? What what does it teach us about how we got the way we are? Three things I want you to notice here. First of all, this whole story, I don't know if you spotted it, it starts with a sneer. It says, the serpent asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, the serpent isn't denying what God said. Uh, He's twisting it. He's distorting what God said. 
and then he's mocking the distortion. He's not saying, look, God didn't say that. He's saying, it's ridiculous. It's totally laughable. It's like he's saying, did God really say that? Well, actually, he didn't say that, but that's not the point. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at it. He's trying to change their attitude towards what God had said. In other words, the whole fall of the human race starts not with an action or even with a thought. It starts with an attitude, not with an act, but with a sneer. Now, on reflection... I suggest that's how most people lose their faith today. More often than not, we don't lose God through argument, but through the atmosphere around us. I mean, let's be honest. It's incredibly hard, isn't it, to stand up for what the Bible teaches when everyone else is sneering it or mocking it. If we're going to get the the very best marks at school or at college. It's way easier, isn't it, to stick with what everyone else believes and what everyone else expects to hear. Or if we're going to do well at work, if we're going to excel in our career, we certainly don't want to be labeled a bigot or a fundamentalist or something even worse. When everybody is sneering, when everyone is saying, you believe that, You just want to retreat into your shell, don't you? You want to go along with everyone else just for the sake of an easy life. And so we kind of allow ourselves to drift and end up accepting what others think. And eventually we reach a point where we have no faith left. So first of all then, I think we we tend to lose God as much if not more from atmosphere than through argument. Second, the whole fall of the human race, it proceeds from a sneer into a lie. We we see it here in verse 4. God has said, don't eat of this tree or you will die. And the serpent comes back in verse 4 and says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, I want you to notice here what it is that Satan is desperate to destroy. Notice he doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't say, the only way I'm going to destroy the human race is to get everybody to disbelieve in God. He doesn't care whether or not people believe in God. That's not the issue. He also doesn't actually go after the law or the will or the holiness of God. He doesn't say, oh, God doesn't care what you do. You can do anything you like. He doesn't say, God doesn't say you can't eat of that tree. He doesn't deny the existence of God or the law of God or the will of God or the holiness of God. What he denies is the goodness of God. He undermines the goodness and the love and the kindness, and the grace of God that stands behind all of those decrees. More than anything else, I think what Satan is trying to get into the heart of the human race is, if you obey God, you won't be happy. 
if you obey the will of God, you're going to miss out. God knows that if you do this, you'll broaden your horizons, but he doesn't want you to. He wants to oppress you. He wants to repress you. He doesn't want you to be free. He's saying, you can't trust God. You you can't give yourself to him completely. Therefore, you're on your own. And so you've got to take your life into your own hands. And that right there is the lie of the serpent that I think in some way has passed into every single one of us. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you're religious or not, whether you're moral or not, the seed of this lie is passed into every single human heart. Let me try and illustrate how this works. Imagine that Rich here takes his daughter Grace to the entertainer toy shop in the ball ring. Have you ever done that? Well, this might inspire you. Okay, so imagine Rich and Grace going to the entertainer for the very first time. And Rich is pointing out to Grace all the toys, saying, do you see that? Would you like that for Christmas? And Grace, who's never been allowed in a toy shop before, (laughs) is kind of, wow, yeah, I can't believe this place exists. Why haven't you brought me here before? Or words to that kind of, and, and she's kind of so excited and Rich saying, going on for, see that, see that whole display. Oh, I so want those things. Uh, Rich saying, would you like some of those things for Christmas or would you like some of those things instead? Said, Daddy, I want all of it. I'm so looking forward to Christmas. Two hours later, having finally got to the end of the store, Rich turns to Grace and says, let me tell you why I brought you here. I've brought you here to let you know you're not going to get any of this for Christmas. I'm not going to give you anything. You see all of that? You're having none of it. Now let's go home. Now. (laughs) That sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? But I think that's what a lot of us in our heart of hearts believe about God. We don't really believe he has our best interests at heart. We we might have some kind of relationship with him, but we can't fully trust him to give us what we need. So we're kind of on our own. And so it's down to us to take charge of our life. And we're going to have to take our life into our own hands. Which I think is why at points we end up thinking stuff like, well, I know the Bible says that I shouldn't sleep with this person, but, I mean, come on, it'd be great if I did. I'll never be happy if I don't. Or I know the Bible says I should be generous and not spend all of my money on myself, but I tell you, it'd be brilliant if I did, and I'll be miserable if I don't. And I know I'm not supposed to hold a grudge against this person and try and seek revenge, but boy, it doesn't half feel good to seek revenge. You're tempted. You know why? There would be no temptation unless underneath you already believed you couldn't trust God. It's like all the time your heart is saying, if you obey, you won't be happy. 
Listen, the fact that Satan has destroyed our trust in the love of God is beneath everything else. Remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Famous story, two brothers. On the surface, they appear very, very different, like polar opposites. There was the older brother who, if you remember, was very religious, very moral, followed all of the rules meticulously. Why? So it forced God and everyone else to respect him and admire him and reward him. And then there was the renegade younger brother who went off and had sex with prostitutes and lived it up with all of his material possessions. They look very, 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 very different. But you look at the heart of each one. Why is the older brother so intent on keeping all the rules in an attempt to earn his salvation? It's because he doesn't trust in the grace of God. He's got to do it by his own work. Well, why does the younger brother go off and say, well, I'm going to live any which way I want. I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and no one can tell me otherwise. It's because he doesn't trust the grace of God either. He doesn't believe that if he obeys God, he'll be happy. Neither of them, deep down, believe in the love of God. They both seriously doubt the goodness, the grace, the kindness of God. I tell you, that point of view lies at the root of everything. It's why there are people right now working themselves to death in their jobs because they're desperately trying to prove to themselves and everyone else that they're valuable. Why? Because deep down they don't trust the love of God. That's why people are so quick to put everyone else down and exploit them and lie to them. Why? They don't trust God. And if they don't trust God, then they find it really hard to trust other people too. You see, our, our lives are still being ruined by that first lie. So first there was a sneer for the heart. Second, there was a lie for the mind. And third, that leads to an act of the will. Take a look down here at verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. What was the great sin? What was it that ruined the human race? Well, they, they simply ate fruit from that one tree. God says, this is paradise. I've created it for you. It's my gift for you. I want you to make your home here and enjoy it. You can do absolutely anything, but you just can't eat from that one tree. I hear the story and say, well, what was so bad about that? What was the big deal about the tree? Well, imagine if God had actually given Adam and Eve a full explanation Imagine if Adam and Eve had kind of sauntered up to the tree and said, well, I don't get it, what was so bad about eating from this tree? And God had stepped in at that moment and explained to them, look, if you eat from the tree, there will be infinite suffering and misery and death for the rest of time. 
I think Adam and Eve probably would have shrugged and concluded, okay, never mind then, at least there are all these other trees. I think the reason God didn't step in and give them the full explanation is absolutely crucial to why the decree was so important and what it was really all about. You see, if God had given them the full explanation and then said, okay, I'm not going to eat from the tree then, why? Well, it's just not worth it. That's not really obedience, is it? That's merely self-interest. So here's what I think is going on. God was saying to Adam and Eve, I want you to see that I am God and your life and this whole world is my gift to you. And I don't want you to live as though all of this is just your possession to do with any way you want. No, I want you to live as though it is all from me and it's all for me. That I created it, I know best. Therefore, don't eat from that tree. And so in that moment, you've got a choice to make. You can either choose to treat God as God and treat your life in the world as if it belongs to you, and uh, belongs to God and use it as God directs. Or you can put yourself in the place of God. You can act as if your life in this entire world is yours and you can use it any way you want. You can treat God as God or you can put yourself in the place of God. Now, the serpent certainly gets it because he says, take off the tree and you will be like God. And tragically, that is what Adam and Eve choose to do. Listen, we need to look beyond all of the rules. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't spend all your money on yourself, don't don't be selfish, obey your parents. Don't have sex outside of marriage, and by the way, marriage is between a man and a woman. All the things the Bible says, there are the rules, but behind the rules, God is standing there saying, look, I don't want you to obey me only when you agree or understand all the reasons why. I I I want you to trust me enough to obey even when it's costly for you and even when you don't understand Now, of course, in his grace, very often God does give us the reason for the rules. And often we can simply work them out with the minds he's given us. But the posture that we're called to is one of obedience to God because he is God. And we agree to humbly treat him as God and as though he knows best whether we fully understand or not. Do you realize that Virtually everything that is wrong in the world right now flows from putting ourselves in the place of God. I think that's what lies at the heart of most, if not all, of our problems. Now look, it's not hard to see that murder and and stuff like that comes from putting yourself in the place of God. I I think we've got that. But have you ever thought about your anxiety? You know, some of us in this room, we're just completely eaten up with anxiety. Why? Well, I'll speak for myself. The the, the times that I get anxious are the times when I don't know how things are going to go. 
And in that moment, I'm afraid that God either isn't going to get it right or he's not going to come through for me. And if that's the case, well, it's all on me then. And I'm anxious because I know for sure I'm not going to get through it on my own. Now, what am I doing? Why am I eaten up with anxiety? Well, I'm choosing to put myself in the place of God. You know, I think that is the sin behind every other sin. Because we don't fully trust God. We put ourselves in the place of God. It's like, I just can't trust him, so I've got to do it myself. So how do we deal with worry? Well, as God was leading us through our worship earlier, we deal with it by simply saying that I don't know, but God does. And so I pull myself out of the place of God, and even if I don't understand, and even though it's hard, I start to entrust things into the hands of God. And I don't say this to condemn those of us who feel anxious or stressed or worried about stuff. I'm not looking to judge anyone for feeling that way. I just want to help you. Because living that way, it is exhausting, isn't it? And the pressure is just too much. And and in the end, you're doomed to failure because you can't manage by yourself. And the good news is you don't have to. Let God be God. Why is it that I'm holding on to this grudge? Well, it's the exact same reason. If I won't forgive someone, once again, it's because I am choosing to put myself in the place of God. I I think I know what that other person deserves, and I think that I've got the right to keep hold of them until they get what they deserve. But that's not my responsibility. Again, I'm choosing to put myself in the place of God. I tell you, most, if not all, of our problems come from falling for the serpent's temptation to try to be like God. We don't mind obeying the will of God as long as it makes sense to us. But if we feel like, well, this doesn't meet my needs, then we're very quick, aren't we, to take control and act as if we are God. And that's how we got the way we are. All the corruption, all the abuse, all the injustice in the world. It all comes from within. The world is as it is because of the state of the human heart. We've allowed that the sneers to undermine what God says, so we become dismissive of God's word. We've believed the lies that we just can't trust God. And we have put ourselves in the place of God. So what's the solution? Because there is one, fortunately. We're not going to leave it there, although time might suggest we should. It would be unfair to end it at this point. What's the solution? Well, very quickly, probably in no more than four minutes, let's very quickly close this out by looking at God's response. At the very end, in verses 8 to 9, 
You see, the rest of the history of the human race in a nutshell. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, and the tone here is all important. Where are you? Could be one way of reading it and waking up everyone in the room. Or you could read it, where are you? As we saw the other week, it's our nature to hide. To hide from ourselves, to hide from one another, and most of all to hide from God. It's like we're desperately trying to cover up lest people see what we're really like. But it's God's nature to seek God comes looking for Adam and Eve, calling out, this is my take, where are you? Where are you? In reality, he doesn't need to ask the question. He knows exactly where they are, and for that matter, exactly what they've done. I think the reason he calls out to them is he desperately wants them to respond to him. He's all the time trying to engage with them. He's trying to get them to answer. And the truth is, he's been calling out to the human race ever since. Now look, if you'd only read the story up to this point, never read the rest of the story of the Bible, you would have absolutely no idea the lengths to which God would go to seek us out. But as we read on in the story, we Come to verse 15, here in chapter 3, where we're told that a descendant of the woman would come and he'd be bruised, but would end up crushing the serpent's head. This, of course, is pointing forward to the coming of Jesus, who would once and for all reverse the work of the serpent and restore paradise. I want you to see, it's only in Jesus that all the things the serpent sowed in our hearts are finally dealt with. Here's how. First of all, Jesus, once and for all, dealt with the act of the will at the tree. Centuries after Adam and Eve struggled in the Garden of Eden over that command about a tree, in the Gospels you see Jesus in a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, He's also struggling over a command about a tree. He's in turmoil as he grapples with obeying his heavenly father and going to the tree, going to the cross to die for our sins and pay the penalty that we owed. Please don't miss this. Adam and Eve were in paradise and God simply said, obey me about the tree and you will live And they didn't. Jesus was in a much darker place. He was in a much darker garden. And God said, obey me about the tree, and if you obey me, you'll be crushed. Yet he did. For us. Jesus climbed the tree of death and turned it into a tree of life for you, for me. So there's the reversal of the original sin, the sin of us putting ourselves in the place of God. Salvation comes by God putting himself where we deserve to be and taking the punishment for us on the tree. Here's the second thing. Jesus 
not only deals with the tree, he also deals with the lie. As we've seen, so many of the problems we've got in life, they stem from the lie that we can't trust God. In our heart of hearts, we doubt God's love for us. Really, the only thing that will overcome that lie is seeing Jesus choosing to go through with the cross, willingly choosing to climb the tree of death and turning it into a tree of life for you and for me. I tell you, when you see that, when you understand that, when you experience the good of it in your life, it's pretty hard to keep believing that God doesn't love you or care deeply for your well-being. Seeing the cross is the only thing strong enough to rip out of your heart the lie that you are on your own. The cross speaks truth to that lie. And then lastly, Jesus actually even deals with the sneer. One of my favorite preachers, a guy called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he used to say the way to tell the difference between a person who believed they were saved because they lived a good life and a Christian who understood the gospel of grace was to simply ask them, are you a Christian? The person who thinks they are saved by living a good life is going to get very offended. Like, how dare you question whether I'm a Christian? Of course, I work really hard. I'm a good person. I'm better than these people. How dare you even ask me? But anybody who understands the gospel of grace is going to laugh at you. They're going to say, me a Christian? I mean, what a joke. But it's true. It's true. Look, if you don't find it absolutely hilarious that someone like you could be a Christian, if you don't find it an absolute joke that God could be in the middle of your life, that that God, knowing everything about you, would choose you, that the God could use right now someone like you, if that doesn't make you at least chuckle, you do not fully understand the gospel. When you understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you, the mocking laughter of the serpent will be drowned out with laughs of joy in his face. Jesus has dealt with the tree. He's dealt with the lie. He's even dealt with a sneer and turned it to laughter.